0: The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, The Drawing Specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, The Future of Intelligent Buildings.
1: Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work. Perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo.
2: Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Pien, your co host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So, yeah, interesting one today. Our guest from today is from Hollywood, but not that Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood, England. In his early sorry. days studying law, English, math, and economics, and most recently spent some time through the London School of Economics and Political Science. But believe us, he's actually an interesting chap. So <laughs> who graduates from economics and actually has a personality, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> But Paul does. He's a diverse thinker, having looked at how mindsets can help unlock problem spaces and identify sustainable human-centered outcomes. And just released his first book,
3: Even If It Was Free. I love that title. Welcome to the show, Paul Russell. Thank you, guys. Welcome. I love being here. It looks good. I'm excited.
2: Paul, in your bio, you talk about using an open approach to participatory activities basically loosed on design, thinking, philosophy, which we love that, or interested in your journey that molded your philosophies.
3: Tell us us more. I didn't used to think like that. I think my background was very much, I like to work out how things worked and how they broke. My father was an electrician, so probably from childhood, I liked to tinker with things and figure out why they're not working and how to make them work. So that probably kind of set the scene for me. But then I just went into technology and really drank the Kool-Aid about technology was amazing. The wow factor would just transform people's lives without really bothering whether it did or not. I was sucked into that whole sales motion about this is amazing, you should buy our products. And let's just crack on and make a load of money. And I was I was in that world for many, many years with different different companies. And then the reason for the book, there, not there, the reason for the book, <laughs> yeah, the book was really because I I had an a moment, I had an event with someone who really made me rethink everything I thought about the conversation between two people when they were looking to buy or sell something. And in this case, it happened to be technology, but that really led me into buildings. Infrastructure, and then all the way up to what smart cities might be or what they might not be. And it really was this curiosity factor that went all the way back to us all when we're children that probably gets stripped away,
4: if Mm. we're honest,
3: when we go into corporate land. Yeah. We probably don't realize it, but it just gets stripped away because we have to conform. And I don't mean that in a terrible way, but literally we have to play the game to get the job. And, you know, even though we might still think we've got great diverse, mindsets and approaches, the risk of groupthink and bias really does affect us. And when we're talking about what we're thinking about buildings and how people behave and how we live and how we work, bias is self-evident everywhere you look. And so you wonder, why is that? And even if it was all free, you know, why would someone say they don't want it, which is really the essence of the book. And so, yeah, I kind of got to all the way through my career, different places, carrying this with me all the way through. So eventually I thought, you know, I've had enough of corporate life. Let's go and write this book, finally, get it done. And then really help people explore what I call a divergers mindset, which we all have, but kind of gets pushed to the back because of this convergence on getting things done faster, smarter, better. And we take a risk that we might not have understood the problem, nor the person that's got that problem, you know, designing an airport or designing a hospital or whatever it might be. Have we suffered from groupthink and bias and missed something?
4: <laughs> yeah. I'm so triggered right now. So, you just <laughs> is, that, is that enough to start off with? <laughs> so the reason I got in touch with you and uh, we set this up was a couple of things. One, you, you talk about smart buildings, we'll come on to that. And two, mm. the title of your book, even if it's free. And the essence is, and I'll let you tell the story in a minute. Yeah. I wouldn't take this even if you gave it to me for free. Now, I've been trying to sell commissioning management in North America at various parts of my career. Couldn't give it away. It was like giving away leprosy, right? There are some things that people just won't get on board with. And this whole, you're talking about like solutions, you know, right? So you think about it. Really, every airport that's being built now is a copy and stamp, right? Copy, repeat, copy, repeat. A hospital, copy, repeat. And there's reasons for that because it works, blah, blah, blah. But there's no interrogation about, like, what's working? What do the users mm-hmm. really want? This is one of my issues with buildings, right? We're not really designing for the users. We're designing for the developers. It's a financial product, not an actual product in yeah. a way. Anyway, so this is why I'm triggered. I'm all right, already jumping <laughs> all over the place like a crazy person. <laughs> so that, can we start with the book, right? Yeah. That title, Chef's Kiss on the title, by the way. Yeah, off- absolutely. Yeah. So give us the
3: story behind the title. Okay, cool. So I think it might be 12 years ago, I worked in the tech sector. We were doing the the, the day job, which is to sell stuff. <laughs> we'd gone for a bid and we'd won the bid. And it was for a construction company. And we were good. You know, champagne was on ice. Bells had been rung in the headquarters. We were, you know, flavor of the month. And all we had to do on that day was go and get the contract signed. We had Microsoft with us as well. So we were kind of tooled up with some good people. Went to get it signed, met the CIO, Chief Information Officer, the guy, and he didn't sign it. In fact, he he scrawled out the the millions of pounds worth of value and placed it with a zero and said, even if this was free, I don't want it. And I can remember the incredulous look on the face of the Microsoft guys who, who just thought this guy was a complete loon tune and you know, completely off, off the wall. And I just thought, well, I don't know him that well, but I can't imagine he got this job without knowing what he's talking about. So why has he said that? So I that triggered me. I mean that without a doubt, that triggered me in my career. Because it, it made me think, I wonder why he said it. And over time, I now know why, I think, which is hence the book. But it really was a, a wake-up moment to say, have we missed something? And 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 really that, that moment took me out of my comfort zone in the technology career and went into construction. And the other book, which I'm showing over here, <laughs> just there, How Buildings Learn was the first book that he told me to look at. And in my book, I call him Free Guy, but he actually is on the back of my book and he's a great friend of mine. And he asked me to read that book about How Buildings Learn by Stuart Brand. And it's a fantastic learning for me about um, the pace of change. And to your point, Adam, about buildings we design without really thinking about the, the people, the occupants, it's more about conforming to a standard and and everything else. And, and we'll always argue that's that's because we don't know who's going to be using the building and things will change. But what Brand talks about is when you understand these layers of pace, slow versus fast, you kind of get a better understanding of what you're trying to do. And, and what Brand talks about, which really, when I read it, I thought, oh my God, you know, have we just missed the point? He talks about, look around at other things, fashion, nature, all operates at these different pace layers. And we kind of accept it or we don't, but at least you understand it. I mean, climate change is a perfect example now about our inability to understand the layers of pace. And so what he, what Mark was saying to me was look at it when you talk about technology making a building smart, because if you don't, you'll fail. And really that got me going and that got me into all of the industries who purport to provide smart into, into the, into the smart, into the building world. And it's fascinating, and, and there's some great success stories, but there's also some train crashes in terms of the failure to to understand the pace, and and it's people. You know, the only thing is how people behave, and really, do we spend enough time thinking about it, or do we just assume? Well, yeah, I've flown from a few airports in my time, so I probably know how an airport's going to going to work, or you know, I've been in hospital, so I probably know how that's going to operate, and actually, actually taking a bit of time to just think about have we understood the problem enough? And that's why I wrote the book.
4: <laughs> time. So this is the thing, right? There is the, there is the competing sort of like massive forces when you do a project, time being one of them, right? So it's like, when you're first in a project, everyone's thinking about it, it's all like, hurry up, and then it's, but it's really going on. Then all of a sudden someone goes, right, I'm committing the money. And then the time pressure just comes in like a tsunami, right? And it's like, when am I- Get that rent roll going. Get the money going. And there's no room at that point, right, for considering process. What you're talking about here is processes and people. I worked on a, a large P3 job at Design Phase, and the design team, because it was a P3 and they didn't want to screw up and they were actually on the line for how it worked, they did process models of, like, how do you get a patient from this room to this room in the shortest possible time? And it actually worked, but it made meant you weren't doing a generic hospital design. At that point, right? This was a in Montreal. It was really interesting watching it done. But I thought, okay, that was great on that job. But I've never seen that done since. So in the forty years I've been working, I've seen that done once.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. I mean, in the book, I talk about. I mean, there's a wonderful little story that which which really taught me. I suppose the essence of what I'm, I'm writing about is that everything everything that we take for granted and we love and we spend money on, I call a trilogy of temptation, which sounds quite mysterious, but really it means that. You know, we, we're innovating like on a, on a pace we've never done before. And, you know, that, that's good. You know, that, that's absolutely as it should be. That's a human thing that we do. That's why we innovate and donkeys don't, you know, I guess. But maybe they do, but I've, I've never spoke to a donkey. So <laughs> I, that's I the scrap
4: line for this episode. We innovate, donkeys don't. Thank you. You've got some fun with that, right? Um,
3: <laughs> so, so the first leg of the trilogy is innovation. And, you know, we, we thirst for that. And it's amazing. The second leg of the of the trilogy is that with this innovation, we get confidence, confidence to do things we've never done before, confidence to try things we've never done before, that whole agile culture that we've kind of lived and breathed with. So that's the second leg of the trilogy. And the third and final leg is the fact that allows us to go faster. And so because we, we believe fight or flight, so therefore we need to go faster. So the three added together creates a situation where we'll try and build things faster, smarter, better. We'll try and pump it full of more and more innovation to make sure we're more comfortable, more safe. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that until it is. And there is something wrong with that. And that's when the other side of our human vulnerability appears. And I'll talk a lot in the book about bias and our assumption and our arrogance towards knowing the answer and the fact that we'll solutionize things too quickly. And even when they don't work, we'll get wrapped in a sunken cost fallacy that say, well, it didn't work in that, that hospital or in that hotel, but it doesn't mean it won't work in the next one. You know, and I'm pointing towards artificial intelligence a little bit there because we passionately believe, because of this trilogy, that fundamentally we're right. Mm. And we being, you know, industry generally, and anybody that kind of rocks up and says, okay, that, that might be true, but can we just reframe gets kind of bashed down a little bit because when people say reframe, I think it's, like a slow down message mm. and no one wants to slow down. You know, if, if I if I say to you guys, look, I like your point of view, but can we just spend a few minutes immediately? That's a red flag, which is this guy's gonna slow us down. Get and on. we can't afford to slow down. We've got to get on. And I don't know, was it Einstein that said if I had an hour to save the planet, I'd spend 59 minutes thinking about how to do it and a minute doing it? Allegedly he said that. And you kind of think, yeah, people don't like that, but if they're honest, it probably could take advantage of that. I mean, I don't know if you guys have heard the story. You must have the Berlin Airport story. In
2: the
3: new Berlin Airport, you mean? Yeah, it? the new Berlin Airport story. I know that it's should have an unmitigated disaster. Unmitigated disaster. But it, I mean, I only read what I've seen. But if you look at it, it, got, it has all the hallmarks of Trilogy of Temptation. Yeah. Let's build the biggest, you know, the, the, the smartest airport <laughs> in Germany to service, you know, Europe like, like can never be done before. But because the architect had a, had a bias against shopping malls, you know, things like shopping malls were excluded. And then by the time they got through with all the myriad of problems, planes had changed in size, travel patterns had changed um, more shorter, shorter journeys, and then we get a pandemic. And I think it only opened uh, like last year, 11, 12 years later. And you kind of think these are all very, very smart people, very clever people, but something had happened. And it's just unpacking that, which is nothing shattering really new, but it does come back to, I think, our admission of frailty and how we tell each other stories. So I want to tell you this very, very quick story it's in the book. And I know the words really well. It's 3 a.m. in the morning in Singapore. Our colleague has lost experience. Tell us how you're going to restore it. And that was it. Now, my world and the built world is very governance driven. It's very checks and balances. There is no wriggle room for imagination usually, you know, the architects maybe, but the whole process is very well drawn down. And this is from a bank. This is all they said. They didn't send anything else. And when you read that statement, it was a story. It was a story that had a protagonist, had the colleague. They, they'd lost something. It was three in, in the morning in Singapore. Immediately when we read this, it got our mind thinking, what the hell is going on in Singapore? at 3am in the morning. What if they lost? When will they get it back? What is it they've lost? What's the impact? Is it going to get worse? Suddenly your mind starts to open up. And as your mind open ups, a lot of new questions appear. Well, what if we could, what if we tried that? What if we tried that? And we responded to this bit in that way and we won it. The VP of the procurement rang me and said, the reason you've won that is because you're the only one immediately said, can we speak to someone in Singapore at 3 a.m. in the morning? Because we want to be in their shoes to feel what it's like for them to lose their experience. Whereas all the other competitors just sent the bog-standard stuff or didn't bother replying. And she said, you know, it's my frustration. It's my frustration with the industry, the process, the governance, that there is no room left for a little bit of curiosity in the conversation that small example, I think echoes everywhere. We all know we could do it, but we're just so scared. You know, we don't know what will happen if we do it. Well, do you know what happens when you do it? You find a better answer.
2: I love this conversation. It's like uh, Stephen Covey meets David Kelly, the CEO of IDEO, meets Freud, meets Maslow, meets Virginia Satir. Okay. Right? meets a
3: brummy guy from Birmingham in the u k.
4: <laughs> curiosity and creativity are different sides of the same coin, right? If you're crushing curiosity, you're crushing creativity ultimately.
3: Am I right? Well, I think you are. and I think the danger, and I've worked in industries that are hugely creative, is that we dress it up, we dress up curiosity and creativity, and we use phrases like, you know, let's have a let's have a workshop that where we'll think outside the box.
2: Oh, I hate that. Statement. Don't get me going on that. I have am going to stop. I have an image of a caricature trying to escape outside the box. Yeah. And 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 when that statement first hit the press, it was like thinking is an activity, but it's not a physical doing. You can think all you like, but until you actually do something, nothing happens. But the problem was is that as kids, everybody's told not to color outside the lines. Mm. We're taught as infants to stay within the box. Yeah. And then someone comes up with this slow and think outside the box. And it actually, my brain imploded. <laughs> and it hasn't, it
3: hasn't recovered since. Me neither. But then I will admit there were moments where I would go into these meetings thinking thinking it was feasible that we were going to think outside the box. But I can probably count on one hand, if one finger maybe, where that generally happened. And a lot yeah. of it's because we're just scared. Leaders, leaders generally are scared of letting their staff. I mean, Google, I mean, Google, I think we're renowned for their Friday thing where, you know, if you worked to Google, you, the three of us could sit in a room one day, come up with an idea, and if they liked it, that would be our job for the future. And it completely opened. It could be anything. It could be anything crazy you like. Mm. Even Google stopped that now. Because they've now got a top down approach, which says yeah. we can only do that if it contributes to this. So already yeah. they're asking you to color between the lines, which maybe makes sense when you look at their competitive marketplace. So it's really hard to keep our minds open for too long. You know, we get tired, you know, yeah. we're tired. So we go in these workshops that are innovative and creative. They're just not. And of course, and I've worked in this industry for sure, where the next problem we have is that we have these workshops and we stuff them with technology. I mean, I I worked in in Rico for Rico, where we would have smart whiteboards whiteboards to make these meetings and these funky workshops even easier. It just increased the frustration and reduced the creativity even more because people spent most of their time trying to figure out how to use these products and the creativity just sucked out of the room. (laughs) So I think we've tried and tried and tried to make things smarter and smarter and smarter and increasingly fail not because we're not trying the right thing but because the trilogy of temptation gets us and we need a more more people to say i just think we could still think outside the box but let's just not call it that because as soon as you call it that the pressure's on to come up with ideas and you know the job is just to come up with ideas full of post-it notes on the wall and we think we've done it when we've done that exercise the truth is we all know that's not the, that's not the exam question the exam uh, question is to come up with a really good idea that's sustainable
4: uh, yeah i sometimes think those design workshops are just virtue signaling so that you can get that image of all the post-it notes on the wall mm. and it's like ticking the box down that area but every design charrette and workshop i've been to it goes like this we all get in everyone shakes hand we have a coffee and a donut we all have this group hug we violently agree with each other for a day and then because it's every decision is based on first cost, we still got out and do what we did in the last job. It's a total and utter waste of a day, in my opinion.
3: But you wonder, like, you, I, I'm with you, but, but I'm also thinking, well, there, there, must, there must be some better ways. And I think a lot of it is because we just need to probably dust down our cognitive skill sets. For example, I think, we, I think I maybe talked about this when I spoke to you before, Adam, about when was the last time we had a good idea? So, you know, I've done some sessions recently with teams, leadership teams, where we've run a good ideas audit. All which right. is sounds really posh, but all it is is just to say to people, take a minute, take a five-minute break, go off in your corner, you're the, you're the chief marketing officer or you're the chief sales officer or chief head of engineering, go in your own domain because that's your area of expertise, and think back the last 12 months and think back the last time you had a good idea and then come back to the room. Bit soul-crushing. And it is soul-crushing. <laughs> it's soul-crushing because they can't do it. When you then reframe it and say, "Okay, look, okay, let's let's just part that. We'll get to that." You know, you're struggling to find that. No problem. Now go and do it instead. Think about bad ideas, and there's a flood of bad ideas. Uh, So you think, "Us is really interesting." You know, they they're they're eager to tell you the bad ideas, but they're struggling to come up with the good ideas. So why is that happening in your business? Because this workshop that we're about to start is about innovating for the future. We're not going to have a successful workshop because you can't think of what a good idea looks like. And when you finally get them and you reframe and reframe, you then start to find out how they have good ideas. And then you kind of set the frame for your workshop because then you've got the, who are the barriers, who are the blockers, things like that. And you've got an open, honest opportunity. And every time I've done it, it's always revealed something that everybody would have said at the start, nope. No, it's we're so innovative. Our ideas are amazing. You know, we 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 just want an acceleration. We just want more of the same. But if they're really honest, they struggle to find out what they were like.
4: Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of uh, narcissists and psychopaths in our business, unfortunately. And all of them get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and go, "Your ideas are just the best, Adam. You're awesome." You know, and yeah. that's how they start their day most of them. I well, know I do. <laughs>
3: you know, it, it's, it's hard. It's interesting. To, you know, the whole smart thing, yeah, it, the smart building thing. We you know we. Yeah. We find that, and again, groupthink is a is a, is a killer. Is that finding the person who's gonna give you the the answer to a question you hadn't thought to ask is probably a magic source. And I told you the example. Yeah. I think of the the building in London. Yeah, repeat that. Um, story. that was a great story actually. Yeah, and I was at IBM at the time, and we had artificial intelligence. So we had you know we had a right to talk about smart cities, smart buildings. IBM were one of the first. Tech companies to talk about smart cities way back when. So yeah. IBM were entitled to a seat at the table, which I, in again, the way you even say that sounds crazy, but they, they were entitled to a seat at the table. And so this table was full of the architects, the M and E people, all of, all of the project teams involved in this building, which is probably at the time, probably still is the tallest commercial block in, in London. And sure? no, no, cause that's the restaurants, hotels as well. This no. was pure, pure commercial okay. 67, 68 floors. Anyway, so the workshop was was ostensibly to talk about tech and there was an app and there was a smart building app. And we can all probably work out what that would do. Organize your dry cleaning, you know, book your gym membership, tell you what's on the menu. And the meeting was going fine and they were looking at wireframes of the app and it was all very much business as usual. It's all been done before. No creativity, really. And everyone was the same age. They were all white male, all white male in the room talking about this wonderful app. And in my curiosity stage, I, pro- I was beginning to kind of get a bit tired of this myself. I noticed that the young woman who was in the room, ostensibly to take the notes, was completely bored. And <laughs> I know that because I've seen that look. And, and I hope she won't mind, but I've seen that look from my daughter when I've been talking about things. <laughs> I, so I recognise So I probably rudely interrupted her because she was not paying attention. And I said to her, what do you think to this? app because you're more likely to work in this building than we are. And she looked at it and she said, well, you know, if you, if you made me use it, I suppose I'd have to, but I wouldn't use it. And I said, well, why wouldn't you use it? She said, well, it doesn't do anything for me. And I said, that's really strange. Why would you say that? She said, well, the apps that matter to me are the apps that I've already got on my phone that I already use to engage with my, my friends and they, to kind of get me around London, find me the train times and bus stops. And so when I said, to all, well, if you could use the app in that app in this building, what would you think? Should I be all over it? And, and the guy who's designing the app, who'd spent a million pounds already, I think, on the app, just looked crestfallen. And I remember saying to him, you know what? I just think we've just been talking to the wrong people. Yeah. And he said, yeah. yeah, but I've just been talking to the same people I always have been talking to. Real admission of, yeah, you're right. I haven't been talking to her. Yeah. And I think, you know, finding the person that has the problem is job two. Job one is what is the problem? Yeah. And we, yeah. we skim those two questions and we like to jump straight to we've got the answer. We don't need to know what the problem is. We've got the answer. via uh, ergo Berlin airport. Yeah.
2: Mm. Biases are strong and it applies not only to, you know, the building industry, but you know, it, it applies to other like companies, but also applies to industries. And I, one particular industry that I'm, that I participate in has probably spent, annually close to probably six million dollars a year on trade shows and so let's just say you know over 10 years that's 60 million dollars that they've spent collectively as an industry to try to change market perception of their of the industry with no changes (laughs) if you're in charge of a corporation and the marketing public relations sales team spent $60 million without any changes. How long would you keep those people on staff? Right. That's, that's, you'd, be, you'd be done. And so, but these biases tell them that, you know, every year we need to have a trade show and we need to sell booths and we need to sell advertising and we need to have all the bling and bring in customers. And we need to do that because that's what we've always done
3: without creating change. we always done it that way Bias.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And it's yeah, a yeah, dangerous, dangerous place to be.
2: Because it yeah, creeps
3: well, up I, on you. I kind of think I know why that that might be because of the word pivot. <laughs> um, you know. Because I think that's sure gonna show buzzwords. Because you've got a word pivot. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> okay, this project is going wrong. You know, we'll pivot. And it's <laughs> just a, the sheer it kind of yeah, as soon as someone hears the word pivot, it's like, oh, we're okay now then. We're, we're going to save face, we'll save money, we'll succeed because we've pivoted. <laughs> and, you know, and every time that we used to do it in, in my industry, in the tech industry, you would just say, oh, we pivoted. And you think, you know, okay, that, that makes sense on an email or a, or a broadcast, but what does that really, really mean? And I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's just a, a, it's a catchphrase, like think outside the box, with this, these kind of words that we use because it's signaling to the other person in this conversation and it's signaling and it's a successful signal most of the time because we know we're waiting for those type of words to give us comfort and assurance that hey guys this project's going wrong but we're pivoting now so we're okay and it's that kind of safety signal I think that we look for and I, I just often wonder it's just laziness of our brains not, not of the human being of our brains to say do you know what I've got so much going on Pivoting is fine because that gives me a chance to, you know, make some sense of my day. And I've the only time I've seen pivot work, pivot work. And I, I can't claim nothing to this. Was during the the pandemic. Was one of the NFL teams had an app, and the app was for at seat food and beverage during the game. Pandemic, no games. They pivoted the app and and turned it to help the homeless queuing at food banks and they use the app to allow them to book their food delivery rather than queue up to get their food and they use the app's architecture to pivot and change the way it works and it's a successful pivot because it made a real difference to a human outcome and so I always use that story when people say the word pivot and they say okay that's a pivot what are you talking about is just covering your backside and (laughs) that isn't going to be the same impact
4: A friend of mine used to play Project Bullshit Bingo. There were certain key words. (laughs) And if he was in a meeting and four of them came out, he'd scream bingo. (laughs) Pivot would be one of them words.
3: Yeah. But it it is amazing, though, because it it all comes back to how how we frame things. And the simplest reframe can be the most powerful thing. And I urge anybody listening to this, we all can do this. You know, I had a, a workshop recently about fly tipping. I don't know if that resonates, Robert. For you, but Adam, you'll know. This you need to describe anyway. our international audience what fly tipping is. So, fly tipping is is really where people have household waste, rubbish, and they could take it to a public refuse place to to be disposed of, but they don't. They put it in their car or put it in their van, drive up around the roads and lanes near, near where we are, and dump it. They dump it illegally. It's horrendous. It's the, one of the worst social things that you could. You could think about, and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. So we call oh, it fly yeah. tipping. And you know, we run this kind of workshop where we asked people to reframe: Why is that happening? What should we do? And we had the spectrum. We had some people going: We need more cameras. We need more surveillance. You know, well, let's catch them. Let's arrest them. Let's put them in jail. And then we had to the other side. We had people going: Well, who who is the problem in this situation? Is it the person dumping the stuff? Is it the council, the local authority? And it kind of revealed that what has happened is because of the collection of this refuse has become so finite, so, so granular, so governance-driven, people won't go. But when they won't go, they also realized that if I got a van and came to Paul's house and said, you know what, I'll do it for you. Just give me 20 bucks and I'll do it for you. I'll then dump it. The person with the problem is the person with the van because they're the people that are dumping the stuff largely. So what if we could make their lives easier? And Toyota nailed this years and years ago in the car industry, when they reframed one of their problem statements and said, how can we make your jobs easier? And so when you think about the smart, the building world and how we reframe what we're trying to achieve with airports and hospitals, how often do we have a moment in our thinking where we reframe what we think we're doing. And often we don't. We go with what we've done before, and we push back anybody that attempts to reframe it because it might cost us something. And so we push it. If we could just not do that and have a moment to reframe, I think we'd find a reason like the fly-tipping white van, and we might find the Toyota example in every example we work in. I'm grinning because I'm
2: remembering reading one of Jack Welsh's books, and. he was addressing the uh, sales and marketing team from the jet engine business, parts business. And all of the sales guys, GE sales guys that were selling GE replacement parts to the GE engine people were making a killing. Like they had almost obviously 100% market share, right? So Jack reframed it. He said, you're not in the GE parts business, you're in the engine parts business. So now your, your commissions are not based on GE sales, but all part sales for all jet engines around the world. Over like a half a second, he diluted yeah. their commission base by reframing what was actually their business. Yeah. Jack was a master at reframing and people hated him for it, but that's how he made GE as strong as it was while he was at the helm.
4: Yeah, yeah that's interesting.
3: The other one that I always think about every time I get in a building is lifts, elevators. Yeah, you know, elevators went through a time when they were too slow. People complained, and that's because the buildings will get higher. So of course we were complaining about you know the elapsed time waiting for lifts. So when they looked at the problem originally, they they one of the problem statements was how do we make them twenty percent faster? Well, of course that engineering wise that was probably very difficult to do without really making some, some significant cost impact to the running of the building. But when they reframed it and changed it, how do we make people enjoy it the experience more? They realised they could put mirrors in the lift, which is now why mirrors are in lifts. And that's because people can look at themselves, they can check their hair, they don't feel threatened, they don't worry about the lift falling down because they're they're preoccupied with what they can see. And then we have mirrors now in our lifts, and and you know then we have come music, and so all of these things were to try and reframe the problem, which is why. One of the largest elevator lift manufacturers in the world, Kone, rebranded themselves and call themselves people flow specialists. People <laughs> they worked out, but they're, they're no longer you know, lift engineers, which sounds really boring. Yeah. You know. they're people flow and you know, help people flow smoother experience. And it's all about this outcome orientated world. When we're in the built environments, the outcome is not the one that's got the human being attached to it. The outcome is hitting target, you know, avoiding fines, penalties, stuff like that, and built against a generic, you know, avatar of there's going to be someone using this airport, and of course that has to be the case. But more and more people now are starting with the outcome orientated observation first, that, working yeah, the other way.
4: That's really interesting. A good segue into what I want to talk about next, because you know that flight tipping thing was a great example of unintended consequences. You start off with a great, with a genuine light need to do something good and you wind up with an unintended consequence. And, you know, and then the Coney example of, you know, and elevators now have screens in, right? People sit there and watch things like that, a new smartphone. But we're moving into this new, brave new world of smart buildings, right? The potential here to be impacted by all the things we're talking about here, the lack of thinking of people, the lack of thinking about users, the unintended misapplication of technology, the potential for this to be horrible is just huge. I mean, there was an example in Toronto where Google were, the, Toronto is a really strangely developed place. There's lots of undeveloped waterfront. So Google were going to come in and develop this Google place and, and they wanted to like have sensors everywhere. And in the end, it all got shot down because it was considered too much surveillance. So it didn't even get built because people weren't ready for the like, the, I'm going to track you like everywhere you go. Oh, you can be in the toilet twice a day. Do you think that's a bit much? You know. <laughs> so it didn't go anywhere. Now, that doesn't mean smart buildings aren't going anywhere. But what, how do you see the smart building market sort of evolving, considering all the things we've just been talking about?
3: Yeah, I remember reading about that Google. That Google yeah. story. Yeah, there are numerous examples, you know, too many to mention about the addition of the word smart. It's kind of, you know, creates problems in itself. Like group. Um, and I think, honestly, we just need to stop talking about that word and try and reframe our own language to just look at, get away from that word. Yeah. Because I think that word itself has, has you know, creates, a, has, has a bit of a mm-hmm. a blocker. Some people love it. A lot of people hate it and a lot of people distrust it and therefore we're not going to get the outcome we're looking for because we've created a, we've created a, a blocker just by that language. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a lot of it's down to the language we use and, you know, without, probably is thinking I can come up with a word, I don't, maybe there isn't a word. I think it does require a shift in thinking to, well, I think the problem we need to overcome is people aren't the same. And as soon as we can get past that problem, then we can make, I think human centered designs that, you know, will be sufficiently good enough. And I think that's the key sufficiently good enough. Whereas what we were trying to do before was make it so much better and smarter than anything ever done before, that by doing that, it didn't help the people who just wanted good enough. And I think good enough is um, not a great strap line. I know not as good as smart. I know, but um, good enough building. <laughs> this airport is good enough. Well, but the truth is, you know, an airport that's good enough to get me on on my my plane on time is good enough, right? You know, smart airport that has delays and baggage issues and, you know, big cues for the, for the coffee is just not good enough. And, you know, that kind of dumbing down of our language, I know is impossible because we just love language and language and language. But I do think a little bit of humility in the process, but not just because it's a, t- a coy word to say. But I think there's a lot of great people out there who already insert this human centered conversation during the process, not because they're trying to slow it down. But because they realize they want to make sure that the human involved in that conversation disrupts themselves enough to say, am I doing the right thing before I get too far down the line? And, you know, God, we've got so much evidence to suggest we know this to be true. So why would we continue to perpetuate that problem? And it then points down to culture leadership and it kind of gets kind of a bit big. And it therefore wouldn't be easily fixed, of course. But, yeah, yeah. Stop saying smart would be a good thing. But, but I Googled smart the other day and it's just gone nuts. I didn't realize how many things are called smart now. Smart cat flaps were, were a thing I saw. You think, my God, you know, I just want a cat flap. You know, what is it? They can't build a better mousetrap? Or you probably think you can build a better mousetrap. I don't know. But yeah. What's a smart
4: mousetrap? It kills the mouse and sends him a text. You're dead.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I work with colleagues who are spending their time working on things like smart mouse traps and stuff. Yeah. Because everybody wants to try and you know have their moments in the in the in the limelight, which is kind of okay, but that brain power could be put to a better place, I think.
1: The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding, plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show.
2: Well, there's an evolutionary continuum on this stuff. I remember Professor Chris Peischer was his name, and he, this is going back, Oh, man, I got to think, like 20 years ago, in the very beginnings of nanoparticles, nano, and he developed or was in the early stage of developing nanodust. These were small, tiny nanosensors. And the idea was is that you could actually embed these in paint in the walls and as a receiver. And so if people were wearing transmitters, the building would know, and if, you, and if the transmitter had information about it, So who is the person? What's their age? What's their physical capabilities? Do they have, you know, psychological challenges? Maybe they have, you know, it could be mental illnesses, brain health issues, dementias, for example. So the building would actually know who the person is, where they are, what they need, and then using relays, be able to direct these people back to their rooms or to wherever they needed to go. That was an ideal world back then. There was no limit to what you could think about. Right. But in practice, we haven't been able to do it. And part of it is an economic challenge that we have. You know, millions of smart sensors don't come for free. No. <laughs> right? no. Yeah.
4: So I think the uh that was a pre-social media era where the externalities of social media are becoming evident now. And that eventually would fold into the smart building equation, right? Mm. So you know, there's there's a thin line between a building that is to use technology advanced enough to be awesome. There's a thin line between that and being completely creepy and being a surveillance prison, right? Mm. That line is way the thin. Yeah, and it goes back to the story you were telling earlier about that young lady in your meeting, right? Mm. She was looking for a value add, right, and nothing more, right? She didn't need to know X, Y, and Z. She just wanted this, this, and this, and boom. So the way that this thing actually has to evolve is it has to focus on her. Not what absolutely the developer thinks they want, or what the government think they want, right? And that's going to be the battlefield, I think, in the future. This line between surveillance and value add is going to go backwards and forwards.
3: Yeah, but it's interesting. I was I was on a thing yesterday about digital poverty. I'm I'm yeah. an ambassador on this uh, thing yesterday, and we we were talking about you know you know you know if we have millions of people who are deemed to be a you know, digitally excluded, you know, how can we do that? And there's a lot of you know, people thinking and talking about, well, you know, it's laptops, tablets, let's get a supply chain, let's distribute, let's, you know, let's put people in place to support them and, you know, all great things to do, to do. But we had a great conversation about the problem is that people who, firstly, people don't realize they're in that situation. They only know they are when they want something. You know, I'm on the, I I need to speak to my bank and and they want to send me a text message with a code, I, I don't have a phone or... You know, the bank has got a chatbot and you know, I don't know how to use that, whatever, whatever that might be. And, and this fascinating thing about at that moment in time was when they needed a digital experience. And of course, they, they don't know when that's going to be. And, we, you know, we can't possibly advocate for that. And when you think it, take that and move that into the smart building and all the efforts we've done is to try and anticipate when people want. Or don't want to use the toilet or want to use the smart whiteboard in the room or want to use the restaurant. And what we're not able to do is capture the behavior, the analysis of what people want at that time. And we use sensors. I think traditionally, you know, we just kind of track them and we kind of see why do they do that? Why do they go over there? And, you know, that sort of huge industry looking at those sort of things. And the only thing I can think of is that if you suddenly, on this call with Amazon, or well, let's just take Amazon for a minute, and said to Amazon, you know, would you like to take over the smart building industry? You know, they're probably a good crack at it, and um, because the one thing that they they understand is people's behaviour, they because they can influence that behaviour, rightly or wrongly, they can influence behaviour. So they have a mindset about behaviour. The majority of the other people who are providing the tech don't. Yeah, you know, they have their own mindset built on engineering and and you know deep learning of, you know, building uh, systems, of course, but that might give them an, an assumption that they also know about human behavior. I mean, why did Koday change then their company stratline? Because right. they realize they need to be behavioral specialists, not just engineers. Yeah. So Amazon would probably have a crack at it if they wanted to. And you know what? They probably could because the one thing they, they do know is at that moment in time, someone wants to do something order yeah. something get it delivered and that's really all the building is doing i need to queue for something i need to go somewhere you know that's what we do in buildings so i think there's a lot of it to be done now if that's smart brilliant let's let's vote for that all right and i don't see a lot of that i see some great attempts but they can't scale i mean what is the building i know the architect now i can't remember his name who did the building in amsterdam the edge right yeah smartest that's, building on the planet yeah you know 50,000 sensors, amazing, amazing, amazing apps for everything. But but how many of those do they build? And also, if I, worked in, I worked for a time with facilities yeah. management companies and they were looking after 25,000 buildings. And the strap line was, we're going to transition 25,000 buildings to be smart. Well, when I left that kind of scenario, I think they'd probably done, well, if any at all, yeah. they've done less than four, I'd be amazed. And I say that only because they've been flooded with technology. I wouldn't say they were smart. So. It's scale as well. How do you get scale? Because we're talking about affordable homes. We're talking about social living. We're talking about, you know, construction and, and driving, you know, well-being for people on a scale that we've probably never seen before, where we will use automated process, off-site build, artificial intelligence, 3D print, all those amazing innovations. But when we're doing it, how do we also make sure that the outcome is whatever that word smart is? And I think we've got a long, long way to go there.
4: I think, yeah, on scale, it can only ever be Amazon, Google, Microsoft, maybe Apple, right? They're the only firms at the moment with the scale
3: and the reach to do something like this. Well, I think, but, I think, and I think the smartphone is the, is the, I'm not going to say pivot, I think smartphone is the thing. Yeah. Because it's the thing we we're closest to, which is back to the young woman. Yeah. The young woman was looking at that smart building purely through the lens of her smartphone, not yeah. through the lens of an app that she would have yeah. to download and use because... She was told to, but she was looking through the lens of a smartphone that kind of ran her life. You know, if if she then could put the building in that lens, if chances are she would be an advocate to collect data and it wouldn't be surveillance anymore. Because to her, it'd be like, I'm just using it. You know, if you if you want to use my data like Facebook is, I'm I'm fine because it I see the end result. And I think that's the subtle shift we're going to have to go from away from surveillance by making it something they want to do in the first place, as opposed to something we're imposing on them.
2: Adam, we had um, Bill Browning on yeah. a while ago. And I don't know if you know who Bill Browning is, but you know he's a leader in biophilic design. And when I think of smart buildings and Bill has a, a view of that like none other. And as an example, so. Some of the concepts he works with is when people travel through spaces, like that's us take, for example, stairwells. Hmm. These are boring spaces, right, that are lit up for safety and have all of these, you know, the fire protection, blah, blah, blah. But people use them. And so for him, these are spaces that we could draw people into and then become spaces for socializing. So they would put these digital boards on the landings so, mm-hmm. when people went to use the stairwell, as soon as they opened up the door, the lights would come on, the screens would show trees and waterfalls. Like you can imagine a large screen and a, and a large stairwell, these beautiful images, and people would collect there. And all of a sudden, now the staircases that at that one point were never used became places for ideas. People would meet in the hallways and they would spend time and talk. To me, that's a useful place for smart technology. The
4: convergence of biophilic design with the technology. Yeah. Yeah. Something good could come out of that. But to the previous point you were making, Paul, I think the only way to make these buildings work with this level of technology is to anonymize people. So what I mean by that is the genius of all these tech firms is they they make you identify yourself to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. I was in London the other month with my daughter, and she tried to get a haircut. She could not get a haircut book without giving her email and her name and a phone number, right? So, you know, whether you're a tinfoil hat person or not, she's in the system there, right? Now, that will be the resistance, I think, to a lot of smart buildings, right? That creepy person of interest type thing. So if you could somehow have that technology but anonymize it so that, yes, we know 10 people are here and 20 people are there, but you don't know it's Sam, Paul, and Mark, Right. That's going to be the way you're going to sell it en masse. But the problem with uh, Amazon and Google and Apple and people like that is their business model is tied to identity. For sure. Right. Yeah. And that is the
3: conundrum that's got to be unpicked there. That's well, the, I mean, not, it's got to I, be unpicked. I agree with you, Adam. And I gave you the example yeah. yesterday. I think I was at one of these conferences where we were talking about at the time there was this similar to smart and pivot. Yeah. One of the phrases was data is the new oil. Bingo. <laughs> I think it was coined by one of the retailers. Yeah. Uh, and again, you can see why, you know, they use yeah. that phrase. And that really latched on. People talked about it all the time. Data is the new oil, and which is quite strange because it seems we're trying to reduce the consumption of uh, yeah. oil, that, you know, but data's going the other way. But I was at this conference and this was all coming out. And, and this guy next to me, I think he worked for Bloomberg and, you know, we're talking about smart buildings and yeah. IoT and big data and algorithms and machine learning and deep learning. And he said to me, What's the problem? You know, what what what's the, what are you guys worried about? What's going on? What's this problem about data? And I said to him, you know, off off offline, I said, Well, one of the problems is ownership. The supply chain is so disparate, you know, the, the life cycle is, is involved, this, this contracts, you know, all that kind of governance, and therefore no wants to own it, therefore no one wants to trust it, no one blah 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 and carried on and going. And he said, you know what, how much data would you sell this, you know, what would you sell this data to me for? And I said, well, I don't know what you mean. He said, well, take this building. How much data does it produce? And I'll give you a price. He said, because that's what I'm really good at, is putting, you know, numbers into data. That's my industry. He said, maybe that's your missing point, is that there's no no tangible, you know, currency going on. It costs you money to install all this stuff, but you don't know where to pass it on. You know, you don't know what to do with it. And I think there's some interesting lessons to be learned there is, you know, what if we charge that young woman? You know, a dollar a day to use this building, you know, and, and, you know, for her, you know, she might think, well, that's nothing because, you know, I can use my, my stuff and a dollar's nothing. And, you know, it kind of pays the way because as soon as you don't have that, then I think you get your problem, which is I need to know who's using it because that's my only way of building a, a business case to get the investment involved. And that's why Google and, and Amazon probably would be the wrong people. But the interesting industry I think that might be relevant is the telco industry Yeah, because the telco industry, you know, are looking for their na- data as the new oil. And, you know, you look, they're on the phones, they're on the phones. They know it's me. They know it's you. Do they care that I'm using it to book a meeting room? Probably not. Do they care that I'm using it to get my lunch? Probably not. They, they care that I'm using it only. And what they are are masters, masters of monetizing data. And so I think, you know, I kind of often think about telcos and smart buildings, because they've got to find their new forest. They've got to find their new marketplace, I suppose. Um, so not just connecting these things together, but actually yeah. being the sort of, I don't know, the, the marshal, probably the wrong <laughs> phrase to use. But
4: We're getting onto economics here. Obviously, one of your bags in your past. When you put a price on things and ask people to pay for it, you very quickly find out what's valuable and what's not, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because price is a signal. Absolutely. People don't like to hear this, but price is a signal. It bounces supply and demand, and it sends you signals. You choose to ignore the signal. Most people do. But, you know, if take the edge in Amsterdam, right? I'd love to do, like, a post-facto analysis on that and see what worked and didn't work, you know, because I bet you half the stuff they put in just is merry. Nothing's going on with it, right? But some of it will be working. The question for me is what is the stuff that's really working, and what do you do with that, right? I'd love to know that someone, someone, please do that. <laughs>
3: send me too. I, I me too. I mean I, I I can remember going to a similar building where there was one department that you didn't have to use the the app or the screens to book meeting rooms,
2: yeah.
3: and they were using post-it notes, and literally you know you, you'd just put on the note, I want the room from nine till ten, and yeah. Robert would put his note and sat like there watching this, and I said, "Why are you guys different? Why are you guys not using all this stuff Yeah. And they said this this works. Yeah. Exactly. Good, going back to this good enough scenario. Yeah. And what it really came down to was trust. Yeah. Nobody would move the post-it notes. Yeah. Whereas the digital version, you know, just was fraught with, you know, like snags and, you know, you know, real challenges. So they hadn't ironed out those challenges. With the post-it note version, trust was implicit just by the fact that if I put a post-it note on the wall that says Paul 9 to 10, no one would dare remove it. Whereas if I went in and put it in the calendar, somebody would kind of knock on the door and crime circumvent me and tell me, Paul, could you move your meeting? But it was almost the fact that I'd put the post-it note, they trusted me and I trusted them. We weren't going to have a row. And I thought when I, when I walked around the rest of the building, I thought, oh my God, we're going the wrong way. We're stuffing more stuff in when really we just need more bloody post-it notes.
4: If one of the issues with social media, right, the reason someone wouldn't take your post-it note off, because if they got caught doing that, the shame. Absolutely. Right? Whereas if you're online and no one can see who's rubbed off that meeting, bad behavior doesn't get punished, right?
2: Absolutely. you got to do that in a gym where, you know, you got a row of bikes or yeah. treadmills, and there's a, there's a board there, a whiteboard, right? You know, bike one, time in, time right. out, right? And there's like 20 bikes, right? right. If anybody ever got erasing someone's name, tried to, you know, prioritize their time before the other guy, the gym just explodes. Like hey, that's God. just an ass hat move. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody will let
4: you know that. Yeah. So a downside of digital is bad behavior is not called out, right? No. Right? One of my old really? friends used to say the problem Adam is no one's punched in the face enough, right? When you get <laughs> when you get young, passionate people screaming at people who are eating their dinner, they're doing that, safe in the knowledge that that old person will pick it up and smack them in the face, right? They would never go out and do that to a skinhead who's sitting there eating his burger. No. <laughs> Very true. They're Very bullies, true. right? Very but true. they do it knowing they're not going to get a consequence for that bad behavior. So, again, this is all all these social engineering problems have to be ironed out for the smart building to work, right? So it's not a technology problem. It's a social... It, ecology problem it's a building an engineering problem it's a people problem it's a technology problem all these things have to be mushed into an equation and resolved right and that's why they are bloody difficult to do they sound great but and everyone goes of course i want that but wow to pull that off is hard as hell
3: i would just come back always to you know the framing how might we make this building smart you know let's if you made that your first question yeah because, you know, the alternative is how do we make this building not smart? You yeah. know, the, the opposite to that. When you go through that, that process, you start to wheedle down towards your answer because you get through to who are we looking at? Who's the person? And then you get to the next question down, which is what if we tried something? You know, that group of people, you know, you know, they wanted a, you know, how do we make our workplace efficient? Maybe maybe they didn't say smart who are the people involved in it us what if we just use post-it notes now you know and and the wow is the fact that they don't have rows they get on as a team they trust each other and so what works is all of that now how often when you take those five kind of step questions in a smart building context do you get past the question what works because rarely. Things don't work. Yeah, it's got wow, no, unquestionable wow, you know, staggeringly so. But as we saw during the pandemic, most technologies just couldn't pivot to accommodate people who've changed their their space. And we got found out in lots of cases.
4: Yeah, that's when you find out what works and don't work. That, that's the cold analysis, right? What's being used and what's not being used, right? Very simple. I love them things where you see these... uh Aerial views of a town, and then there's this green path, and then you can see the shortcut people are yeah. taking through it. Right? Yeah. That tells yeah. you that design looked great on paper, but in reality, people just went, "No, that's not working for me," and just cut across.
3: Right. When you turn your mobile phone from portrait yeah. to landscape, yeah, you know, things change in in direction. And how often, when you do that? I mean, who is it? Someone told me a story about people flow. They were doing some analysis of people yeah. flow in a, in a new railway station they were building. And they were trying to work out in trying to work out whether they could get people through the station at sufficient levels that were safe, but also to justify the train timetable. As they were doing this exercise, they realized they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't was that the surrounding streets in the city and the way the traffic flowed and the way the bus timetables worked and everything else, they could not get people into the train station at the right level. To justify. So they were gonna before they even start, mm. trains were most likely to run underoccupied.
4: Wow.
3: And you think, that's oh my God, you know, those trains are where you make your money.
4: Yeah. You know,
3: so and you think, wow, you know, and now they're they're looking to fix something. But these things could have been thought about, you know, you know, what is the problem we're trying to change and yeah, who are the people the affected the, the most? Question, right? It's where's the person the trying point? to get the bus. They're the person, you know, what, what are you doing about them?
4: Okay, listen, we're coming up uh, towards the end. We tend to just ask one quick fire question each. Okay. Do you want to go first, Robert, or should I? Go ahead, yeah. Okay, so my question is what should we be talking about that we're not talking about now in terms of smart buildings? What do you think is the,
3: uh, like
4: the thing we've got to really focus on?
3: I think it's probably just human behavior. Yeah, behavior. It's, it's, it's using our, our, our undated knowledge of human behavior. And really, really bringing that much, much closer as a skill set for people in the, in the industry and to get them to realize that maybe they, they do need some help. And yeah, I would say definitely behavior. I don't think it's got anything to do with technology. I think that's further down the line and it's human behavior against the confines of the governance and process and compliance that everyone has to operate in. But yeah, I would definitely say more behavioral scientists or more um, anthropology involvement in the process. They're there, they're around. It's just getting that understanding to bring them into an industry that's traditionally either think they know or don't believe they need to. <laughs> yeah. So, Paul, my question is,
2: let's just say you took a thousand design professionals, architects, engineers, interior designers, property developers. They were forced to attend a program you were putting on Which was on human behavior, and you had to invite a human scientist, a behavioral scientist, a social scientist in as your guest speaker. Who would you pick,
3: and why? Probably either Trisha Wang, who did some work with Nokia because of what she did around human behavior around mobile phones, and probably someone you may not have heard of, but someone called Susie Liu who works for Netflix, who again used this human behavior research to understand why people used or didn't use in her case the humble receipt because she looked at the humble receipt that horrible piece of paper we have to keep and looked at how can we make that more interesting and of course she works for netflix so how they visualize data is everything netflix do right because that's that's what they do but the fact they recruit people like her and trisha wang in the nokia story i think are examples of industries are trying to wrestle away from their own people sometimes, and actually encouraging more diverse thought in areas that got nothing to do with their prime focus. But when they look outside and bring this learning in, it opens up doors. So probably those two. But if you're talking about someone famous in the UK, it would be Dr. Hannah Fry, who's quite a well-known mathematician, who's a storyteller, I think, in the best way. And she tells stories through data. And I think also storytelling, you can sell anything if you've got a good story. You could probably sell a smart building if you've got a good story. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Tom Peters again this is yeah. again, going back a long long time ago Tom is Tom is one of those legends who has always been ahead of himself but he talked about and this is this is probably easily 25 30 years ago and has he was on about stories your story is everything yep he said in the future your story will tell your journey and being able to tell that story will, is huge and I've always right. held on to that. And when I think about people that <clears throat> have good stories and there's, you know, whether it's success stories, and I think about companies, for example, in Europe, and one that comes to mind only because I have an intimate relationship with had in the past was Danfoss. And Mats Clausen was the founder of Danfoss, but the family during World War II, they were from Denmark. But Denmark was, of course, was occupied by Germany during that time. And the family had a farm and the family As to to the best of their abilities, you know, kept safe those Jewish farmers that they could as employees so that they weren't touched by the German military. And then, of course, this went on when Mads grew up as a young boy playing around with his brain and materials and developed, I think it was a compressor or something. Anyways, he was up in his bedroom and the thing that he built became so heavy that it actually collapsed and the this device fell onto the dining room table below, you know? And it's the story of the company. I mean, the products are one thing, but it's the story of the company that always, for me, attracted my intellect to its history and, and its roots. And yeah, you're right. The story is everything.
4: Origin okay. story, right? matters. you remembered
2: that.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, ju- just to very quickly, there's a the whole thing about story thinking. Yeah. So we talk about storytelling and, you know, companies have chief storytellers, you know, IBM have them, Microsoft have yeah. them. So people dedicated to that. And I've often wondered about that because, you know, do they assume that we all are able to tell stories? And it becomes imp- implicit the fact that you go and work for a company, you understand our story. We don't need to train you. You understand it. Mm-hmm. So go out and tell the story. and. Truthfully, we're just not that great. You know, we'll we'll bombard people with evidence, (laughs) case studies and, you know, all sorts of things. But that genuine, from the heart, storytelling. And the thing that probably is part of this whole behavioral thing is story thinking. Mm. And so a story thinker is someone who thinks about the audience, thinks about how they're going to receive the story, puts themselves in their shoes and then realizes when they've done that, they don't need 100 pages of PowerPoint slides. They don't need a, you know, an hour and a half YouTube video. They need something else. And they reframe to suit the audience. Yeah. And we just don't do that well. And so consequently, we just confuse the hell out of people, but they won't tell us because they don't know they're confused.
4: Certainly they right. believe
3: you because you're from Google or somewhere, mm. and it just kind of spirals. So, yeah, story thinking is, a, is probably an art that we should all develop more. Yeah,
4: yeah, you know, I like that. I love that. So let's uh, let's wrap that up there. Listen, we will put out to everyone in the show notes all your connection points and sure. links to your book. But thank you for coming on. That was a really interesting conversation. I'm super excited about the future of buildings and worried yeah. all at the same time. And it, yeah. so I think we covered all that here. And you know, your book is uh, is really interesting. So thank you for doing that as well. Yeah. No,
3: thank you guys for giving me the opportunity. I really enjoyed
0: that chat. It's nice. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless. Increase efficiency. And save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners. Adapting to your workflows and processes. And doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. Are we there yet? Yes, we are. The future promised real-time
1: monitoring and control of our buildings, and now that is a reality with Sensor Suite. The only question you need to ask yourself is, how much energy and water is my building wasting each year? SensorSuite will do the rest. With SensorSuite solutions, any existing building and equipment can be retrofitted with smart sensors and controls that generate an industry-leading high-resolution data feed, unlocking a level of operational optimization and visibility across your entire building portfolio. This allows analysis and targeted interventions that turn old analog buildings into intelligent, energy-efficient grid resources allowing monitoring and control at your fingertips through Apple, Android and Windows devices. Make a difference to the environment and start saving money today. Go to censorsuite.com or call toll-free 1-855-773-6767. And now, back to the show.
2: A lot of our guests have been sort of property development, architects, engineers, that type of... And we haven't really had sort of someone looking at the social aspects, you know, the human Mm. development side of it. I mean, Bill Browning was close to that, and some other individuals. What I like about Paul is he's, he's a really diverse thinker. Yes. You know, and he, th- he gets the psychology, he gets the human factor design, he understands the, the trajectory, if you will, of uh, technology. Like he has a grasp on it. And he made some really good comments, and I love the talk about layers of pace. Yes. That is so true. I mean, I was, when he said that layers of pace, I went everything from ants to, you know, bullet trains to the movement of money, you know, across the world, like hitting a button. And all of a sudden you've transferred billions of dollars in a second. Layers of pace, being able to sit back and watch these layers all move. Yeah. That's a cool thought process.
4: He's also talking about we've, we've become autonomous sometimes, right? You get into a project and there's all these milestones you're, Bang it, you're crashing towards each milestone, right? And when you're in that mode, it's really hard to stop and think and pace yourself and, and have an original thought, right? Because you're just hitting that deadline every time.
2: Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> like I said, when I when I was listening to him, I was, you know, thinking of Stephen Covey. And I think it was Stephen who said, seek first to understand, then yeah. to be understood. Yes. Which is a you know, communication, that's really important. And, you know, I got to think, I mean, if I think back on the times of my life the conflict, it was because I was trying to be understood rather than seek to understand.
4: Yeah. So conflict and rebellion is normally rooted in a lack of listening and hearing or being seen, right? Yeah. You know, and that's why rebellions break out. You're not hearing me. You're not seeing me. Right. That's the world we live in right now, frankly. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, that operates at a personal level and a macro level. But but the other thing I liked was his that like, he was talking about the word smart or green or climate change. They are just so inaccurate, unbounded words to be completely useless. And I actually think that is one of the big issues we face because take climate change, you know, it's such a macro thing. Is it an act of God if you're in that gang? You know, it's so big to be overwhelming, to make you think, oh, screw this, I can't do anything about this, right? But if it was reframed as pollution, and, you know, do you know how much stuff we chuck in the sea every day? Do you know how many Mm. rubbish tips went away? And green, right? What does that mean? So this is how you get greenwashing, because green is such a horribly useful word. You can just stick green on things, and people go, oh, that's good. Oh, I like this building because it's green, right? What does it mean? Nothing. And then smart is the same problem. It's going to be like the green washing all over again. You're going to get smart washing or whatever that's probably called.
2: Yeah. These buzzwords, I just, I call them pixelated descriptors because there's so many of them now that they've become so small and so meaningless. They're pixels on a screen and people throw them out as if there's, you know, that there's a gazillion of them and they've lost. Any impact? I mean, I hear people use, I'm, like you said, Like I, I hear the word smart and my eyes roll back.
4: Oh Yeah, it makes my eyes roll. I mean, he, he correctly called them out as useless words, right? Yeah. Which is what they are. But he also called it out as they're trying to cater to the lowest common denominator. But in doing that, you're not acknowledging the complexity and you're making them useless. So yeah. your intention is to like put the concept out and have people react to it in a good way. And all you've done is make people not react to it. It's a unintended consequence, right? And again, yeah. no one calls it out, right? I don't know. It's just weird. You Someone's got someone, political level has to be a grown up and say, you know what? The world's complex. You can't boil it down to a sentence or a word. And this is really what's going on. Yeah. Right? Clarity is everything in this world. And, you know, it's, Clarity is the enemy of bullshitters and obfuscators, right? <laughs> <laughs> but people don't want clarity because when it's like, you know, that meeting he was talking about where that young lady said, yeah, I wouldn't use that app. And there's a guy in that meeting who spent a million pounds developing it. And he is going to, for all his life is worth, he's going to try and force her to use that goddamn thing, right? That's reality meeting what works and doesn't work, right? And that. Yeah. Is, the problem and building designers suck at considering what the users want. I could probably count on one hand in forty years I've had that conversation. What do you think it's going to be like for the users? I said nobody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, if we, if we take it down, every once in a while, in the right crowd, if we're in a restaurant, all quiz the service staff. Yeah. And it depends on who's with me on the dinner table, but let's just take, for example, if it's a bunch of manufacturers of boilers or heat pumps or whatever, right? And we'll ask, and typically it's a woman, but not always, but typically it's a woman and we'll ask her, you know, about her world, you know, do you rent a home? Do you live, do you buy your own home, do you in a condo, whatever? And if they happen to live in a house and, and, and it works really well if they've lived there a long time and I'll say, well... What do you have in your house, a boiler or a furnace? And she'll say, Well, we have a a boiler, just as an example, right? And how long have you had that boiler? Oh, 20, 25 years. And do you know the name of that boiler? Haven't got a clue. No. Haven't got a clue. So then I said, Well, have you ever lived on a farm? Never. But you know about tractors. Yeah. Well, what's the most famous tractor brand that you know of? John Deere. No heartbeat, nothing. They could get the name of the Mm. tractor. They don't live on a farm. They never worked on a farm. They don't know anything about farming, but you can ask them about a brand name of a tractor, boom, John Deere. But they've been living with the boiler for 20, 25 years and they don't even know what's in their basement. (laughs) That's a fire of marketing, right? And storytelling. It is, right? So this whole you know, the whole thing, Stephen Covey, seek to understand, understanding. Who your client is, people that are in the building, like what do they need? And are you imposing your own biases? We talked about biases in the interview. You know, are your biases actually getting in the way of your success? Yeah, you know, they are
4: absolutely. Yeah. And it's really hard to break out your comfort zone, right? We all want to yeah. live in that comfort zone. That was a really interesting interview for me because I think the the next frontier coming out of this recession we're just going into now, buildings. Are going to try and all they're all going to try and push into the the smart space, and there's going to be some huge wins, and there's going to be some horrific fails, and it's going to be fascinating to watch this unfold. I'm all, again, keep going back to Steve Burrows, right? You know, I'm almost sad at the end of my career because I'd love to see how this arc comes out. You know, what twenty fast forward twenty years? What is a smart building then? Does it work? Someone's going to crack that nut, I guess, right? I'd love to know what that looks like. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, when did we have Paul Gezi on, How long ago was that? He was one oh, of those here. Three or four years ago. He was, he was onto that as well. Now, he's he's doing well. He's the CEO of Control Energy yeah. in, or Control Inc. Now, they are really ramping up with the IoT stuff. But again, yeah. they're, they're plowing the market of energy efficiency. So technology is an enabler of efficiency. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not going beyond that at the moment. And now Paul's a commercial beast and he's in the business of making money. The reason yeah. it's not going beyond that for him because there's no money in it. Yeah. Right. So there's money in enabling energy efficiency. So that's where the dollars are going, I guess. Right. Yeah.
2: I love the whole discussion about social ecology, the story, story thinking. That was good. Thinking.
4: I love that. I'm t- I'm so stealing that.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it that was really good. I mean, like I said, I remember Tom Peters talking about it, and here yeah. we are still, you know, twenty five, thirty years later, talking about your story, story thinking. Yeah. I love it. I, I really do. And that other one about the, uh, like, the
4: Netflix taking on these people who are just nothing to do with their business, just to get basically yeah. when they're hiring that lady, like, what was her name, Susie Lou? Basically saying we're going to hire you, and you're going to show us something we just can't even see. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that is awesome, right? I love that. That's creative, but it's also an acknowledgement that you don't know everything, right? Yeah. But that doesn't happen in our business, does it?
2: My not, no, it doesn't. You know, my dream guest would be David Kelly from IDEO. We'll never get yeah. him on. You just see, just so he's too big. Yeah, he's so out there, yeah. big. And but you know, he has a college now. And I think it's at Harvard or Wharton, one of the one of the big Ivy League yeah. business schools that is on industrial design and human factor design, that kind of stuff. And was there was ever a guy that understood what it takes to make products for people. It's it was his philosophies, you know, and we've talked about this before that, you know, again, going back to Covey and, and Paul and, and, you know, but seeking to understand and when they develop, you know, the mouse, because IDEO worked with uh, Steve Jobs when Steve was, you know, trying to develop an interface, the human interface to the computer and the the mouse came to be. And David Kelly was a friend of Steve at the time. And the same thing when the when the iPhone. And I, there's a great for our listeners. If you can find it online, 60 Minutes interviewed David Kelly, and he was talking about his early day relationship with uh, Steve Jobs. And Steve actually went to him with some of the very first prototypes of the iPhone. He actually dropped it off to him. So you know, wow. can you imagine Steve Jobs showing up at your doorstep? Hey, David, here's our new iPhone. Yeah. What right? do you think? <laughs> yeah. So David turns it on, and it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so Of course, David and Steve have a, you know, a chat about that. Yeah. And, but, you know, there's a, I've said this before, and I'll say it probably to the day I die. Architects and engineers and property developers, they really need to get out of their brains and bring people from all walks of life. that are going to be using that space, that development. Yeah. We talked in an earlier presentation about the space between the buildings. Yes. Adam, I haven't stopped thinking about it because really what draws people to not just the downtown core, but just developments yeah. is the ability to engage with nature, people, random chance encounters with whatever, you know, or the people to be able to escape the buildings that they're in. You know, I need to get out. I need some fresh air. This just is like, the, uh, the French concept
4: of flaneuring, the flaneur. Now, you uh-huh. murdered that because I'm an Englishman, right? So, <laughs> But the concept is this. I just go and walk and I find things happen. I see things, things happen. I engage with people. But you've got to have that realm to walk through, right? Yeah. It's between buildings. is part of that flaneur experience. I leave the office for a half an hour walk and it could be great. It could be awesome. I might see some nice public art. I might sit in a nice space, right? But that space needs to be there.
2: Yeah. Well, and so it's it. Ah, so I just had a thought, you know, and thinking about Paul's book, you know, even if it's free, which again is an awesome title, Right. title, man. It's a great title, right? But the space between the buildings, even if it's free, if it sucks and it's free, people yeah. won't go to it. But yeah. people do go to places; they'll pay to go to places where it's fantastic. But if it's fantastic and it's free, yeah. you know, then you have you have social interactions, and you have dialogue and you have stories and you have creativity and and that's actually you know when you think about the common languages around the world like you know if you if you actually remove religion and politics from the world as we know it taking that from a line of uh, bare naked ladies uh, um, you know what we have in common is food and music yeah. and yeah. art these are common cultural things that bring people together. And when you can make that available to them through the space between the buildings.
4: Yeah. That's a great book title, by the way, Space Between the Buildings. I think you should take that and run with it.
2: Yeah, it's just awesome. I, yeah, It really struck with me. And, I, and again, with Paul and his book, and even if it's free, and that's a great story that he had, right? Where the yeah. guy said... All this fancy crap. Even if it's free, I ain't taking it. Listen, watch.
4: that guy who was supposed to sign that and didn't sign it and said that—what a baller move! Just oh no, like. Kenny, I love it. Microsoft, I don't get <laughs> it. Just got that mic. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was such a baller, pal. Game of Thrones move that guy did.
2: Yeah, and but what Paul did was what everybody should do. Like if you're Perfect. if you're if you're thinking about it, you and you get that rejection your brain shouldn't go into depression or rejection or whatever. It's why? okay. Why? Yeah. Why? Why
4: did that happen? Yeah. That's That's what you got to take away out of that. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that was good. I really enjoyed that. And I'll see you at the next one. Cheers. You, Bye. Bye.
1: You've been listening to the edifice complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert bean to access show notes for this episode, visit edifice Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.